0: Welcome to Tactical Breakdown. On today's episode, we're going back to basics. If you're an old school fan of this podcast... You'll know that we used to do long-form sit-down interviews, and this is exactly what this is with my friend John Becker. John is the host of the new podcast, The Debrief, with John Becker. It's available on any platform. It's going to be releasing here a few days after this episode goes out here Saturday, June 4th, so make sure to check that out and subscribe to that podcast. I had the opportunity to get a sneak peek and listen to some of the first episodes And uh, let me tell you, folks, it is absolutely phenomenal. Not only the amount of expertise that John brings as an interviewer, but also the guests that he has on are some of the top tactical minds in the world. It is absolutely phenomenal. Cannot recommend it enough. The debrief, links are going to be in the show notes below, so make sure to check that out. But this was a conversation John and I had. We talked about training. We talked about podcasts. We talked about a lot of different stuff. It's a fun episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown Podcast on the Islet Network. Your number one resource for law enforcement training. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, one quick update before we jump into this episode the 2022 ILET Summit will be taking place September 19th to 23rd. All online this year. It is the last year we are doing it completely online, and you can get access to the entire summit for free. Go to www.iletsummit.com. That's www.iletsummit.com. Links are going to be in the description of the show notes. Make sure to check out the event again. Register for free, get access to over a week's worth of training content from some of the top experts and instructors in the world check out the website find out who the keynotes are who the speakers are what subject tracks you're interested in and of course if you want ongoing access to all of the amazing training or access to the summits that we've completed previously you can register as a member of the new ilet network community more information on that coming real soon let's get into the episode Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode here on the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Kanakin. With me today, John Becker. John, appreciate you taking the time, brother.
1: My pleasure, I Appreciate uh, you having me on.
0: Yeah, man. I'm I'm hyped. You have a new podcast coming out, and um, I've watched it. I've watched the first couple episodes, and we're going to dive into that. But uh, it's called The Debrief. It's about tactical operations um, and a deep dive into the tactical industry. Obviously, something that I'm super personally interested in, but it's something that you've been involved in for almost your entire career. So for people that don't know you, let's, let's, let's do a quick, well, let's rewind the tape a bit. Let's go back. Tell me a bit about John. Who are you? What do you do?
1: So uh, at 17 years old, I leave high school, go to college. And have a girl that sits next to me that says, she works for a rock climbing company. And she says, let's start a mail order business. They had a camming device that was bigger, stronger, faster, made in Korea. You know, there the, was going to be the best thing in the market. And she said, nobody has it. Everybody's going to want it. Let's do a mail order business. And I was, you know, 17 and going to college and said, yeah, let's go. It seems interesting. You know, let's do it. She flaked right away because she had a job and, you know, a full-time job and a husband. And she was going to college. And uh, it, I didn't, from the beginning, I didn't want to feel like a sales guy. And so I felt like if I knew more about the product than my end user did, then I was more of a consultant. I was helping them make good decisions. I wasn't selling them stuff. And so I learned a lot about the gear. And what started to happen is I started dealing with spec ops units, started dealing with SWAT teams that were buying carabiners, harnesses, ropes, and because I understood the gear, I could help them make good decisions. Well, that turned into, hey, you know, can you get us Eagle nylon gear? I said, oh, I don't know anything about that. Oh, dude, call this guy, get set up. We'll buy our Eagle from you. And that turned into, can you get us chemical agents? I don't know anything about chemical agents. Oh, dude, come down. We'll put you through one of our schools with us. And so, by the time I'm 25 years old, and well, 24, and in law school, I've got 3,000 hours of special tactics training. I would, I would never turn down training. And I was very lucky in that early on, I hooked into guys who were, you know, now retrospectively the founders of, of SWAT in the United States. And they were the initial subject matter experts and the guys that were developing the tactics. So, you know, Ron McCarthy and Sid Hale and Mike Hillman and John Coleman and, um, you know, R.K. Miller and the, the guys that really were developing the technologies and the, and the tactics were my initial clients. And they took me under their wing and they invested in me and they spent a lot of time with me and gave me a lot of training. And as a result, they built a culture for my business that I didn't expect. And now retrospectively, 37 years later, I can look back and go, they made me care more about my end user than the business because the guys I was armoring were my friends. And the teams I was working with, I knew personally. So when I put armor on somebody, it really mattered to me. You know, what I didn't understand is it was building a culture that when the business scaled and grew and we started doing big military projects, I cared more about the end user than I did the, the the business side of it. And it turns out that was a good thing. It created a culture that was completely end user focused. But in the process, I made these relationships and saw a lot and heard a lot of stories, which was the genesis of, of the podcast eventually.
0: Yeah, man. For anybody who's been a listener of Tactical Breakdown or follows Ilet, what you just said there rings true to everybody because you know, I as you and I talked about offline, there um, that follows the very same mission set that Ilet has, right? It's for sure making sure that we're doing the right things for the right reasons, and that's and and I think that's when when you and I touched base there the other day and and talked about bringing you on the podcast. I think you know it was going to be a quick call. I think we ended up talking for about an hour and a half. Yeah, um, yeah, a long time off the cuff, but that's that's one of those key things right it's there's a, and i've said this multiple times before it's the people that are really at the tip of the spear that are doing the best training that are doing the research that are creating the products they're the ones that are most willing to share what they have and what they know and that's i, I think that just stands true for this industry as a whole man and it's super cool that we were able to get connected on this
1: yeah for sure it, it really is interesting you know and in, in the the you know, almost four decades that I've done this now. I'm, I'm 54. So, you know, it's been 37 years. Um, the people that know the most share the most, which is part of the reason that they know the most because they're willing to share information. And I remember I was very early in my career. I was probably six or seven years in and we had Sid teach a flashbang class for us. Sid Hale teach a flashbang class for us. And I was standing there at the end of the class and the guy walks up and he's like, hey, Sid, is there any way you'd be willing to share your outline? And Sid handed it to him. I said, "Yeah, here you go." And he's like, "Seriously?" And he goes, "Yeah." And he goes, "Thanks so much." And he walks away with Sid's actual teaching outline. And so I said, "You know, I said, Sid, why why would you, why would you give somebody your teaching outline like that? Like, isn't that your intellectual property?" And he said, "You never, you never hoard information. You never keep information. You always share it. It is the right thing to do." And it's interesting because now, this many years later, I realize that 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 culture made me think of the world differently. And and Sid had a lot of effect on me in that way, as did a lot of the founders. You know, the the thing that people forget is when the guys started SWAT, right? When teams began, that you didn't go to a SWAT school they had to make one so you know you think about the 84 olympics coming to la lapd la sheriffs had to solve it uh, one of the interviews i did in the podcast was with mike hillman and mike and i were talking about you know munich and the, the problems that they had in munich and he says when when the olympics came to la we realized what do we do if they put them on a bus so we had to figure out how you assault a bus and how do you stop a bus if it's moving and you know all of those things that we now take for granted because somebody laid that foundation happened because those guys did the research and they didn't hoard the information. They shared it. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the you look at the genesis of the national tactical office association, John Coleman, John's reason for starting NTOA was there was no platform that all of these international, and it's out of the gate was called national tactical Officers association, which it wasn't. Uh, there were teams all over the world that contributed to NTOA. But the whole idea was we have to create a platform where we can all share information and everybody can pass along the best quality information so we can figure it out quickly. Right. So it's almost like a scientific approach, like you see in scientific papers where, you know, they they were like, hey, how do you assault a bus? Well, here's how we did it. And another team would say, no, this is the way we did it. And out of that would come good tactics. But at the beginning, those guys had to figure it out from scratch
0: yeah man absolutely i that <clears throat> for some reason when you said that i my brain cycled back to this video i watched from forever ago of i think it was like south korean special forces doing a um a raid on a bus and they like kick in the windows and they like ninja jump through with ladders oh, through the yeah windows. the one like
1: the sticks where the guy holds up the stick and the guy jumps yeah I've seen oh that. man yeah.
0: epic i think that's yeah. what we should be doing um, <laughs> <laughs> listen um i want to i want to I want, to, um, I want to talk about this. I want to be uh, extremely sensitive to, uh, to you and, and to everyone else. But you've brought up Sid Heal a few times um, already as we've spoken here. And my understanding is Sid passed away uh, just a few days ago. Um, and uh, he was a pioneer, as you had said, of uh, tactical operations, obviously with LAPD. But he was, he's been an influential person in the training industry, not just in, uh, nationally in the U.S., but internationally. Um, and so, um, I mean, first thing I want to do is obviously pass my condolences to you, um, and to Sid's family and and to all the members, um, and officers that he served with and trained with. Um, I think that's a massive loss for, for our industry as a whole. So that sucks. Um, but you had the opportunity, um, when, when you built the debrief out, um, Sid was your first couple interviews that you actually had the chance to sit down and, and pick his brain and speak with him. So I'd like to ask you about that, ask you. About what that was like to to be able to sit down with him one on one and and just draw from that that wealth of of knowledge and information.
1: Yeah. So so Sid Sid and I have been friends for thirty five years. I met him very early after I started Aardvark, and and we hit it off and and have remained close friends since. Um, and it, it was a tremendous loss. It, it just you know it, it is hard to even comprehend how much information we lost and what a wonderful person we lost. Uh, Just such a amazing human being, humble, ridiculously skilled, um, you know, multi-time combat veteran Marine. At one point was a ranking CWO five in the Marine Corps uh, was commander in LA County Sheriff's department was one of the early guys in SEB uh, literally wrote the manual on teaching flashbangs. Sid wrote the NTOA manual that everybody still uses. You know, 25 years later. So it, it it is difficult to even explain how big a loss it was for me personally. It was terrible. I, it, it, Aardvark is not Aardvark without Sid Hale's influence. I I do not have the career path that I do. I do not have the culture that I do in my business without Sid's influence. So it's it's devastating. Um, we're in the process now of of planning a services, and uh, that is every bit as ugly and brutal as it sounds. Um. But no, Sid Sid was part of the reason that we wanted to create the debrief. What I realized early on, um, one of our friends Tim Anderson died. Tim was a 06 Marine and a sergeant at LAPD and early in SWAT as well. And when Tim died, we lost so much information. And it brought this realization to me that all of these stories that I heard growing up with these guys and all the knowledge that they had and the depth of knowledge, um, Wasn't being written down. It wasn't being captured. There's no definitive book on the history of SWAT. There's no, you know, and part of that is because our end users are secretive because they have to be secretive. Partly they have to be secretive for tactical purposes, but they also have to protect themselves against the news media. And so you don't see these guys out having interviews and they're not talking about the stuff and they're not telling these stories. And so it really bothered me to think that the first generation of SWAT op- operators, many of whom are gone already, were taking that information with them. So we, we started talking about it. And then when we lost him, it was like, we need to do this. So I knew Sid was going to be early in the episodes. And, and I knew that there were a lot of topics that I wanted to talk to him about. Um, I, I knew that some of the guys that I was interviewing, this was going to be the last interview they ever gave. I did not believe that was Sid. I I honestly had plans to have Sid on, you could sit down with Sid for 48 hours and you wouldn't come close to scratching the surface on even simple topics. But I thought, you know what, let's, let's do a kind of a history of him and talk about some detailed tactical science concepts. And then, you know, next season we'll come back and we'll do a little bit deeper dive. Um, Unfortunately we didn't get that chance. And so, you know, we, we are we're launching the show on June 8th and Monday morning at seven thirty, I got the call that he had passed. And so that obviously apart from the personal effect of that and, and the emotional aspect of it, there's also now this question of what do you do? Do you, do you push the episodes? Do you not air them? Um, so uh, when I sat down with his family to start planning services, I put it on the table with them and said, guys, this is what's going on. I just did a two-hour interview, you know, with your dad. And I don't know what to do. And they said, you're going to run it. You have to share it. He would want you to share it. And, and fortunately, Sid saw it. He saw both episodes before they passed and, and was really happy with them. So it, it, I think originally they were going to be three and four. and We moved them up. It, it feels to me like that is the place to start. The debrief. Um I will tell you that that I went back and re-watched the episodes and had a very difficult time getting through them. Um he says a lot of really deep things and a lot of really kind of philosophical things that now retrospectively hurt, uh to put it nicely. But it, it's just that was the reason for the podcast was to was to get those guys on, on tape and and to bring stories to light that, that really matter to the community that nobody ever hears.
0: Yeah, man, I mean, that's, I I haven't had that, um, obviously, situation come up where I've sat down, interviewed somebody, and then it's just a few short weeks later, you're sitting there and you're like, oh, wow, (laughs) I can't, I can't imagine, I I, I honestly can't, especially it's being somebody so close that you're so personally close with, you know, I, um, when you had told me that originally, I, I was sitting back and I was like, there's so many people that are in our industry right now. That we're not being active enough in pulling the information out of their brains and yep. putting it down somewhere, yep. right? You know, we, it's and and to to not step too far outside of of this conversation, but you look at what's happening in the law enforcement space right now with the uh, the the amount of officers, the attrition that's happening within our agencies right now, and it's senior level members that are hanging it up that are leaving and you have agencies that are losing potentially thousands of years worth of knowledge and information. And it's walking out the door
1: hundred percent. And it's, it's interesting because when, when 3% 50 retirement started in California, guys that might've worked to 60 or 65 left at 50, which if you know, tactical decision makers, 50 is where they really start to hit their stride, right? Like it it is until the the temples turn gray and the beard starts turning gray that they start to really think, okay, I, I actually understand what I'm doing now. It takes a lot of experience. And so you have guys that are retiring with all this experience and going into private industry, going into whatever, but we've never captured the information from these guys. And And there's a disincentive for agencies to capture information. There's a disincentive for them to write things down because those things ultimately become subject to discovery. And when they get sued, which happens to all of them, Mm -hmm. those things get used against them. Oh, well, your expert, you know, from five years ago said this. And so there's a disincentive to write things down. There's a disincentive to share them publicly. And there's a disincentive to keep people around later in life when they've accumulated all of this experience. Right, there are guys on, on LAPD D Platoon and on you know, LA Sheriff's SEB that have more entries as an individual than most teams in the country do when you combine the whole team. A right? thousand entries, 1,500 entries is not an uncommon number at D Platoon and SEB, which is staggering. Mm-hmm. But when those guys retire, everything leaves with them and so you know it's you just realize we've got to be better at, at capturing this information and one of the things that motivated me to do this was the realization that i'm outside of the system mm-hmm. i'm not an agency things that people say to me are not discoverable on behalf of the agency and when when this idea was pitched i didn't like the idea because honestly i've spent 35 years trying to be a quiet professional Right. Like I'm I have not had individual social media profiles. I've I have been hidden, as are a lot of my clients. You know, we're dealing with everybody from state and local to tier one units. And so part of my job has been to be the quiet armorer for for the top teams in the world. But there was this realization that if nobody's out there talking about this, these things are going to go away. And so I sat down with with some of my mentors from early in my career and I said, This is the idea. What do you think? And they said, you have to do it because people will talk to you because they know, we know you won't screw us. We can have a candid conversation with you and say something that maybe goes a little too far or say something that's taken out of context. And, and we know that that's not going to see the light of day. So we can have an honest conversation. And, you know, we we do, Aardvark does a, a thing that we call the, the evening lecture series or the tactical lecture series. And the lecture series started 20 years ago and it's it's private debriefs. So we provide a platform to our teams who have significant incidents to come in and debrief their incidents to a hand-picked audience. So the last one that we did was was a major metropolitan team talking about two of their hostage rescues. And there was footage that never was released, there was conversation that never would be released, and we had 300 guys from 115 agencies, all of whom have agreed to confidentiality, all of whom understand you don't bring your cell phone and take pictures. You don't put people's names on things. You can talk about what you learned, but you don't talk about who said it. And that series, I've had people come back from other incidents and say, man, I learned so much in this one incident that I had this experience and it really helped me. And what we realized is that, that by creating the debrief, we were scaling that. We had the ability to take that information and push it out in a controlled way, where they would be able to talk to us and know they could trust us. And obviously, we're not going to publish tactically sensitive information. We're not going to publish anything that allows you know the the opposing force to do something. But there's a lot of information. There's a lot of decision making. There's a lot of leadership that lives in these guys' heads, that a young cop or a young operator, you know, military or law enforcement can listen to and go, Oh my God, i never thought about that. Mm -hmm. Right. So much tactical decision-making is paradigm based decisions. Right. I, I always tell the story, like the first guy that found a rattlesnake got bit. If he didn't tell anybody, the second, the guy that found a rattlesnake got bit. If he didn't tell anybody, the third guy got bit and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth, if the first guy, said, hey, I found this thing. It's got a rattle on its tail. Don't ever touch it. Theoretically, nobody got bit by playing with a rattlesnake again. The problem with law enforcement is all every agency that finds a rattlesnake is forced to not talk about finding the rattlesnake, which means the next agency gets bit by the rattlesnake. And you look at how many times we see incidents that repeat previous incidents where lessons learned haven't been passed along. And it's not because the agencies don't want to share the information. It's that it's dangerous for them to do them. And so I realized because we're in this unique position, kind of like you, we're outside the machine. Because we're outside the machine, I can interview somebody and throw away all the footage if I want to. Mm -hmm. Which is not gonna happen if CNN interviews them.
0: (laughs) That's that's creative editing, is what you get with them. Oh Um, yeah. I uh I a hundred well, I mean, before we we got this thing going, right. What was the first thing I said to you? Nothing that you don't want to come out of this interview is going to come out of it. Right. You have yeah. complete control over it. And, and yeah. it, that's been such a crucial component because like you had said, and we had this conversation offline as well is is how much trust matters within our industry. Right. Oh yeah. And if you lose that, it's game over. Yes. And so, um, you know, and you brought another thing up, which I love, um, you know, uh, Chatham house rules, having a conversation um, and, and for, for people that don't know, you can Google it. Um, but essentially you're, everyone's agreeing that we're going to share information and it doesn't leave the room.
1: That's really funny. I didn't use the word Chatham house rule because I, I you know, a lot of people don't know what it is. That is a, actually the way we describe it. yeah is, is, you know, you are agreeing to the Chatham house rule. You are agreeing, you know, what, what happens in fight club stays in fight club. Um, and as a result, the, the conversations that we have are unvarnished, mm-hmm. the conversations that we have are raw and they usually happen before a debrief has, has been written. Right. So we've had people that have come through our debriefs and, and I mean, we've done, you know, we've done quite a few in the office. You know, we did the, we had, you know, the BR Paris BRI come in and talk about Botaclon and, and debrief and talk about things. And, and we'll periodically have a local agency that will debrief and then, I'll get a call from somebody, hey, I'm at this conference and I'm listening to the agency debrief it and now it's the chief and it's a totally different story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And they really. made no mistakes, right? Because yeah. by the time that the story gets handed up the chain three times, everybody takes off the mistake that they want, you know, that, that they find, you know, troublesome. Uh, it becomes a hero story. And when that happens, it's not usable anymore.
0: No, not right? for the, not for our purposes anyway.
1: Right. Yeah, the guy that saw the flower isn't going to come back and say, hey, I saw flower. We need you to come back and go, I found this thing and it bit me. And so other agencies can take that paradigm and plant it in their head. And then when something happens, they know, oh, you know, a backpack sitting by a door, you probably don't want to kick out of the way. You may yeah. want to go in a different way.
0: You make you make a really interesting point. Um, and I wanna I wanna talk about the Brianna Taylor shooting after and remind me to do that. But there was yeah. You know, the, the whole Chatham House thing, um, I'm going to be down at Force science uh, in Orlando here in June for the Force science conference. And one of the things that I'm doing is I'm hosting a, a closed door um, kind of roundtable. We normally do our, tactile, our instructors roundtables, um, and uh, usually we record them, audio, video, and people get a chance to chime in internationally and ask questions of experts. Um, and uh, for science asked me, they're like, can we do one here? And I said, absolutely. I said, but what I'd like to do is I'd like to do one closed door. If you're not there, it never happened Um, because the second somebody knows that there's a camera, there's a microphone, the story changes. It gets summarized. All the, the real, the real raw pieces get left out or they get glossed over. And I wanted to make sure if we're going to have a conversation, let's have a real fucking conversation. like. You want to make it so that those things get out there. And, And what I want to talk about with the Breonna Taylor thing is I remember, and because this wasn't anything that I got because of my position, this was publicly made available. And I believe it was one of the SWAT team commanders basically said that they were running ops on the other side of the city at that time. And they had recommended that those officers don't, don't go in on that warrant. And they did. And we saw what happened. And they said, these are, and he literally said, and I don't remember if it was a deposition or whatever it was, or, or an interview, I think it was maybe with somebody from the department. Um, and he said, these are the mistakes that they made. And I thought that was the best thing that they could have done. And I, yeah. I really believe that we need to do a better job of that. I mean, obviously with the... The relationship that law enforcement has with the public right now isn't the best. I think we would all agree on that. That it could be better. For sure. Um, but at the same time, I've had this discussion over and over with people: is that they want transparency. I think for the majority of people, I think we are. I think we're doing a piss poor job at at just recognizing that, for the most part, a human being there. Most people would under, if I gave them all of the information, most people are going to come to a logical conclusion. And I think that we miss that a lot. And I think we missed the opportunity a lot to say, Hey, listen, we, this is, this is what happened. We ended up with a good result, a, a less than desirable result, right? We should frame, stay away from saying we had a bad result because that's usually not a good, a good thing to put out there, but we had a less desirable result. Here's what happened. And here is the mistakes that were made, and now we're actively training to make sure that those don't happen again.
1: That well, and, and I, I mean, we're constitutionally entitled to transparency, right? Like right. it's interesting because there's a tension, and people forget about the tension that that we are empowering the government to police us. Right. And and the trait for that is that the government has a duty to to do it constitutionally in the U S to do it constitutionally. And, and so the problem is that we, we crucify people when they make mistakes, which is a really stupid strategy Mm -hmm. because if, if an employee brings you, you know, a bad piece of news and you beat them for it, you will never get bad news again. Right. If every time a police department says we made a mistake, we crucify the police department and fire the chief of police. Right. Like, Oh yeah, you know this guy. Oh, I picked up a rattlesnake and it bit me. Oh, that guy's an idiot. We're gonna fire him. Let's get rid of him. Okay, great. The only guy that knows what a rattlesnake looks like just got fired, and the next guy that comes in is gonna pick up the same rattlesnake. So it's it's there's this this strange tension that we have right now between the media and and law enforcement, where we've created a disincentive for law enforcement to learn from their mistakes. Mm. And if you look at you know the the history of special tactics. People didn't, you know, there weren't hero stories. Like what I can remember early in my career going to debriefs, the debriefs were five minutes on, here's what we did right. And, and 55 minutes on, here's everything we did wrong. And, and here's what we should have done. And here's the information we, we should have had or could have had. Uh, one of the questions I always ask when people do debriefs with us is what piece of information was available at the time? that you could have gotten but didn't have and would have changed your tactics mm-hmm. right because that's where you can learn and, and you know the Brianna Taylor case is not novel that's been happening since the beginning of special tactics and that's why a lot of the major metropolitan teams went away from dynamic entry several years ago. It is really unusual you know whether it's laPD or la sheriff like Dynamic entry, no-knock warrants have really, they're becoming increasingly more rare. And it's not because they're afraid to do them. Um, you know, I remember one of the things that Sid told me when he went back to SEB is he said, we're going to reduce the number of dynamic entries we do. And I said, well, well, why are you going to do that? And he goes, you know, it dawned on me as a commander that the guy that's in that house has made so many bad decisions over the course of his life that the sheriff is knocking down his door with a SWAT team. And he's had a lot of time to make those decisions. And he's still made really stupid decisions. What kind of decision is he going to make when we give him 30 seconds to make a decision? Mm -hmm. He's going to make the wrong decision. So let's just slow everything down and calm everything down and give him some time to think about it. But the, the drug wars of the 80s led to this notion that everything's got to be dynamic because we have to save evidence. And so there you now you see this tension and when teams don't do it dynamically and something goes wrong, then the media is going to crucify it. So it's, we've created this really kind of perverse disincentive for law enforcement to learn from mistakes and for law enforcement to publicly disclose their mistakes because every time they do it, we beat them for it.
0: Man, there's so many things that are running off of my head right now. Um, now, one of the things is this uh, this year during the ILET Summit, um, I got very lucky. I reached out to, and uh, Gary Nesner is going to be presenting um, at the conference. For those of you who don't know who Gary Nesner is, um, he was a he was the lead negotiator for the FBI's negotiation team. Actually, stood up that unit. Uh, if you if you go back to the uh, the Netflix show Waco, um, that was him. He was the lead negotiator. Um, obviously that was a portrayal of him, but that he was the person who was actually there. Um, and in that incident, going back to an incident like Waco, you had a tactical team leader who was gung-ho to go in. And they obviously, they they want to be kinetic, right? And you have somebody else who's saying, hey, we can wait this out. But there's so much pressure on them to get that it situation resolved that we all saw what the result of that was that happens over and over and over and over again. And we see it all the time where officers, and it's not just tactical teams, it's officers that are responding to a a call, a domestic or anything. And they're so just it's ingrained in them to get the call over with, so they can move on to the next one, get the call over with, so you can move on to the next one. Instead of saying, you know what, imagine if you took 15 minutes to talk to this person instead of two, and instead of you taking two minutes, giving them a, a ultimatum, them disagreeing with you, and then you having to go hands-on and make an arrest and go through that whole process. Imagine if you took 15 minutes and resolved it, and now you don't have to make an arrest. You don't have to go through booking. You don't have to go through reports. Imagine the time you'd actually save on the in the long term if you take some time at the beginning. And, you know, from a tactical perspective, that is massive. Time is is one of those things that you you have to be so conscious of, right? It's you know I have, a, I have a book behind me. People on the podcast can't see it, but I have Sun Tzu's Art of War, right? And and going back to to what you had said earlier in the in the conversation, you know the best uh, the the best minds from a tactical perspective are usually the ones that have been around the longest. I think Sun Tzu wrote that you know near the end of his life. Um, and, and that gentleman had, had been around and seen some things, um, those, th- that, that mentality is only gained with experience, right? Yeah. And
1: one one to- of the things, one of the things that Sid talked about in the second episode of the podcast is the concept of maneuvering in time, right? So when you look at t- tactical science, it's, it's this concept of, of maneuvering in time. You are, you are using time as, as to your advantage. And, you know, when in the interview I did with Mike Hillman, he talked about the founding of LAPD's hostage negotiation program and, and why they did it. And they, they went back and spent a bunch of time with New York ESU, who had a separate hostage negotiation unit. They, they talked to HRT. They, they came back and they built this hostage negotiation program that integrated into SWAT negotiators. So one of the things that Lee McMillian talked about in our, our interview is everybody on LAPD SWAT team. Goes through a 40 hour crisis negotiation plot. Everybody, 60% of the team continue to stay on a negotiation cadre so that any SWAT operator is a negotiator. And the whole concept of negotiation is you are maneuvering in time, you are using time against the adversary. And it's very easy to forget. And there's a lot of pressure. You know, there's a lot of pressure on SWAT teams. You say, oh, we're going to do a and call out now, it's a barricade. That puts a lot of pressure. It's expensive. Cities don't like it. It ties up roads, whatever. They're like, oh, just get it over with. Which, which is great as long as it goes correctly every time. The problem is when it goes poorly, you've traded a 25-year-old father of two for an overtime budget. Which, which is, you know, I, I think as you as you listen to the episodes, you'll see a recurring theme that one of the goals with SWAT is to slow the whole thing down. And And that's, 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 you know, very effective.
0: You talk to the, is like, and and, uh, you talk to a lot more guys than I do from the, the operational side of things, even in the military side of things, that that's the number one thing they'll say, right? Whoa, whoa, slow it down. (laughs) Slow it down. Right. You get up, you get up to a, a threshold, slow it down. Right. That's take your it, time. It's 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 this concept, you know. Um, it's funny. I was I was watching a video with a friend of mine. It was we were watching um somebody go in and do uh like clearances, like room clearances. Um, and the whatever we were watching was hilarious. Like it was just so sporadic, and just like like they did six shots of Red Bull and just like went after it. And like just they're blasting through this the, these rooms um and and we're sitting there and he's just laughing and i'm like what he's like he's like it would t- i would take as much time as it took them to do five rooms he's like i would get the first one done <laughs> yeah like he's yeah. like because at, at that point why are you there's there's the risk versus reward right and if you're if you're not in an, a combat operational environment and you're, you're in a suburban area or you're wherever, but you're part of a police force. The question is, is should always be like the time. What's the rush. Is there an imminent threat that needs to be dealt with? You're dealing with an active shooter, different story. Right. But if there isn't an active threat, what's your rush. Yeah.
1: It's interesting because one of the things that became really obvious. So we, we recorded the entire first season uh, of the, of the podcast. And. In those interviews, I noticed a recurring theme, which was when you listen to the the masters of the craft, the guys that have studied the game, the guys that founded the tactics, the guys that are, you know, at the top of the you know, pointing into the spear right now, when they talk about things, they talk about why. They don't talk about what. The problem is we've created another perverse incentive for law enforcement. Well, you know, we can teach this guy to use a flashbang in three hours. So why would we put him through a you know a 24-hour class? Well, because the difference between the eight-hour user class and the 24-hour instructor course is he's going to learn the why. Why are we using it? How is it used? What does it do physiologically? Not just, hey, throw it in the room and see what happens. And so it, one of the things that comes with mastery is understanding what to use and when to use it, right? And that all rests in the why. So you look at the way we're training law enforcement now, you know, they're qualifying, you know, in some cases, once a year with a handgun. And then we, we, you know, we're upset because, oh, the guy missed four times. Yeah, he shot one time this year, you know, or he shot once a month. and And we never took the time to explain to him why he's doing the things he's doing. Because if you don't understand the why, you can't make that next step. Right, you equate it to music, right? If you don't understand what scales are, and you don't understand what intervals are, and you don't understand what chords are, you can't make music. You might learn a song, but you're not going to make a song. And so you look at where we are with guys retiring when they're fifty, with us spending more time on on you know training them how to avoid sexual harassment and how to you know uh, avoid racial discrimination and and you know one of the other mandated trainings. And all of a sudden, you have SWAT teams that are training once a month. They're shooting for four hours and doing movement for four hours. You're not going to have the time to impart that wisdom. And if there aren't guys in the stack that have the experience and have the operational experience and have the time, you don't have a real high likelihood of making good decisions all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's it's tragic because what ends up happening is we end up losing life. You know, we end up losing officers. We end up losing innocent bystanders. Because there isn't that mastery of the underlying fundamentals of the craft. And that was really what stuck out in this first season is -hmm. when you hear these guys talk and you hear about why they do the things that they do. Uh, One of the statistics that stuck with me uh, in interviewing Lee McMillian from LAPD, LAPD, when when somebody hits the SWAT button in the city of Los Angeles, there is no SWAT light with LAPD. You get the entire team. And, and so there's a, there's a checklist that they go through and Lee talks in depth about that, how they select the mission, how they, you know, when they decide to activate SWAT, when they activate SWAT. So by the time SWAT is activated, it's been down selected to like a real problem where the guy's refusing to give up and it's, it's a dangerous situation and a felony has been committed. And like, you're, you're, you're down selecting that problem. Then you're deploying SWAT. LAPD use SWAT. LAPD SWAT has tracked every incident for the last like 20 years. They use force about 8% of the time. And that's any force, a wrist lock. Mm -hmm. They use deadly force in less than one and a half percent of their cases. Right. So think about that funnel. You're way down the funnel before SWAT even gets there. And it's still only one out of a hundred times that they're forced to use deadly force. That's tactics. And that's one of the things Mike Hillman said in his interview is it's special weapons and tactics. The problem is the way that we're training people, we're we're teaching them the special weapons. We're not giving them time to master the tactics. Mm -hmm. You know, you remember the Maslow saying, if the only tool you have is a hammer, you tend to view all your problems as nails. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Well, the corollary to that is if the only tool you have is a hammer, all your problems are nails. Screws are nails. (laughs) <laughs> right? like mm-hmm. cutting up, cutting a board in half, you're doing with a hammer. Like y- you have to give, give time for training and give time to spread the doctrine that underlies it. And that's what we've just kind of lost the ability to do. And that, for me, that was a big motivator because I realized that having access to the, to the world's top teams and, and to these amazing leaders, we could begin to impart some of that information. We could begin to share that information to a larger audience.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's, you know, there's so many things that happen when I, when I have these conversations with folks, especially in the, um, in the operational side of things. And this kind of built, built the foundation for what we're doing with our instructor development program. There's, there's two things that we want instructors to walk away with because we're, we're trying to build better instructors. There's two things. One is how do you make the officer a better decision maker? And how do you make them a better critical thinker? That's it. Decision making and critical thinking. There's- but those
1: are both 201 or 401 concepts. That's not 101, right? Better tactical decision making with a rifle or with a handgun is way down the road in handgun training. And most agencies will not have the time to get there.
0: Right. So, but that's the problem, right? We it's it's funny because you go back to the uh, the the thought that you you had mentioned there, of um the you know lo- the the cost of not doing things correctly. You're you're saving a buck, you're saving um, ten cents now, and it's going to cost you a dollar later, right? What's happening? And really, if we talk dollars and cents, and this is a conversation I've had multiple times with folks and it doesn't matter if I'm talking to chiefs or I'm talking to people, other experts um, you know, if we were to take the time now and, and you know, you use the example of um, slowing things down for a a SWAT team on a, on a DA or something. If that team does something incorrectly, not only is there the the chance of the worst case scenario, which is we, we lose there's loss of life, but from the city's perspective, because unfortunately they're probably not overly concerned with the loss of life they're over, they're they're more concerned with a civil action and so you take that the cost of that civil action and you say well if we would have spent another 8 hours talking this guy out um yeah we would have paid ot and yeah we would have paid this and this and this but we the out, the other side of that is there's a civil action for 40 million dollars against the city so where's the trade off Right. And so one of the things that we're doing with these um, with a lot of, some of the training stuff we're building out is uh, um, backing it with with scientific facts and analysis. But done through an academic standing so that when we approach agencies and we approach administrators and we approach the people that hold the coin purse, we say, would you agree that it, if we were to able to con." do something for x amount of dollars and it saved you a multiple of that that that's a good investment and they would say yes but it's done in a way that's not me as a as an instructor or an officer who's been on the ground for 20 years saying hey I know we need to do this they go yeah that's great I don't care but if we take it from an outside perspective that they understand from an academic standing or from a political standing and explain it and contextualize it in a way that they understand it and then after they agree in principle to the concept we overlay okay so here's how that here's how we actually know this to work in a tactical setting they go okay that makes sense and so we kind of take a two-pronged approach to this to the the problem in saying we've identified what the the best tactical maneuver would be but we have to explain it to those folks in a different way because they just don't know right that's one of the unfortunately that's one of the things that's that's uh it's going to always be there if you don't know you don't know if you haven't
1: it's interesting because you think about the way law enforcement collects information so the fbi uniform crime reports collect you know how much force was used and what kinds of force and what kind of incidents lead to shootings and you know officers killed in line of duty and, and all of those kinds of things but agencies don't collect statistics and they don't there's no centralized sharing of statistics on tactics not yet Uh, Yeah, and and I mean it would be fantastic. The the, probably the best I've seen that weaponized was when Taser first started. One of the smartest things they did, and I I assumed it was probably Steve Tuttle that that was responsible for it. But they started to quantify use of force incidents and officer-related injuries, and were able to articulate back. You know, if you know agencies that that adopted Taser had X percent less use of force. And pretty soon, you know, or X percent less officer related injuries, less X percent less fatalities. And you could start to do the math and go, well, you know, just an officer related injury costs X dollars while wow, that pays for the tasers. And so when you went in and pitched it to a chief of police, that was the argument. Right. It was a dollars and cents argument. The problem with tactics is that that's not that has not been quantified. Like we did that to some degree with body armor where we realized that officers wore body armor. They were less likely to be killed in the line of duty. But even there, we don't do a great job of studying it. There isn't a lot of academic study in this field because there isn't a lot of funding for it. And and the only people that do academic research are the activists that are trying to attack the agencies. And so they will spend time to look at, oh, this agency, you know, they'll hire a researcher to say well you know how many times did this agency use force and what races was it used on and what kind of cases but we don't do that to disprove that and and that combined with an aversion to media has created this kind of asymmetric battle space where an activist can accuse an agency of racism or or of of using you know inappropriate levels of force the agency one can't defend itself with data and two, won't defend itself in the media. Mm -hmm. And so we have this this dialogue where people believe that SWAT teams kill people all the time. And if a SWAT team shows up, they're more likely to kill the guy. And that's not true. Mm -hmm. I mean, LAPD has proven that with their data. That is absolutely not true. You know, 92% of the time, the guy surrenders and walks out unharmed and is handcuffed. That's an amazing statistic. But when you watch it on TV, that's not interesting, right? The SWAT team gets there and negotiates the guy out is not an interesting story. And so that doesn't make the media, right? The millions of times police officers encounter people and don't use force are not quantified and not discussed. It is the the, one-off case where an officer makes a mistake that becomes the news item that everybody runs. And, and that's that's what's created this disincentive for police departments to invest in teaching the why and focus solely on, OK, we're going to teach them to, you know, not use force. And, you know, we're going to we're going to restrict their use of guns or we're going to, you know, push down what constitutes a use of force. And, and it's just it's it's dangerous for the individual officers because we're making strategic decisions that are based on lawsuits and news stories that are then driving tactical situations where more suspects are dying, more importantly, more officers are dying or getting injured. Mm-hmm. And, and there there isn't this formal study. So I love the idea of, of gathering legitimate data on training and on force and being able to articulate back to the media. No, actually, you know, if, if the department doubles the number of training days for the SWAT team, their use of forces go down.
0: Yeah. The, the problem is, and to your point, I mean, it's biased and incomplete data sets, yep. right? So, and again, like you had said, a lot of people that are doing research are doing it for a very specific reason, right? It's, it's not um, academically sound. It's not peer reviewed. It can't be because of the way they collect the data. You look at you look at something as simple as murder rates, right? And you know, Dave Grossman talks about this all the time. You know, you look at you look at murder rates, and people are like, well, murder rates are going down. You're like, yeah, but have you correlated that with medical technology? Right?
1: Yeah, yeah. The number of people getting shot may not be going down, but the number of people that are dying, you know, yeah. M- maybe.
0: Yeah. Because yeah. And and so now, again, correlation doesn't equal causation so right, exactly we can't say that that's the reason but what it is it's an interesting data point but it's a it's an argument that doesn't even get to be tabled because they choose to actively segment out any type of data set that doesn't fit their narrative right and that's that's the problem and so um i you know i th- i know you and i are going to have a conversation offline because this podcast wouldn't be the best place for it, platform for it about um you know analysis and reporting on use of force incidents and 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 those types of things but you know that's why we work with force science that's why we work with these groups to figure out a way to get data 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 call it whatever you want i'm canadian so i have to say things differently perhaps than you guys do um call it whatever it is there's i think that's a i think it's something that has to be done but it, but it has to be done in a way that can be academically reviewed I think that's the problem. I think people are too afraid to do it because they don't, they don't, they're like, well, what if the outcome's bad for us? Yeah. Right. That's, I'm sure that's, that's been a conversation. Chiefs 100 percent. Like, yeah. We don't, we don't want to release the data because what if it, what if they use it against us? And, I well, think- and it's,
1: it's the same, that's the same argument with body-worn camera, right? I mean, the, the, when body-worn camera first came out, there was a lot of opposition to it. And, and I, I said, this is like, this is stupid. We're literally giving them the club to beat us with, right? I, I'm an attorney admitted for practice in California. My last two years in law school, I worked LAPD's police litigation unit. Like I, I, I've written a lot on legal related topics. It, civil liability is an interesting topic to me. And I, and I thought, man, this is just not what we want to do. Well, you know, that's not how it's panned out. It's actually panned out that most of the time it acquits the officer. Most of the time, even in bad shootings, right, even in shootings where they might not be in policy, people see it and they're like, oh, God, yeah, man, that guy, you know, God, he was really fighting that that officer. And I can see where the officer would have made that mistake. Oh, he's got his cell phone in his hand, right? It's one thing to say that an officer shot somebody with a cell phone in their hand. It's a different thing when you see the video and you realize the guy pulls it out and points it at them. And so, you know, in the court of public opinion, it actually, transparency actually helps most agencies. Uh, one of the interviews I did was with the, the recently retired chief of Pasadena Police, John Perez. And John, when he when he became chief, instituted a, a high level of transparency in the department. Like, and a lot of people said, you know, you're out of your mind. He built a board out of his opponents as an advisory board to the chief he took the loudest critics of the police department and put them on a board and said i want you to help me make a better police department and and we're going to share more information and the amount of support he got the people that hated the police department all of a sudden were like oh yeah god yeah i can see where you do that yeah i can see where that happens because there isn't there isn't an articulation of the other side and it's interesting cuz one of the camera guys on on the show so we shoot it both in audio and video and one of the camera guys on the show uh, you know is from Eugene, Oregon, which is not exactly the most conservative part of the United States <laughs> and was, you know, did not walk in the room, you know, wearing an LAPD hat like he, he, he wasn't anti law enforcement, but I would say he was kind of left biased. Right. He watched three or four of the interviews and he pulled me aside and he's like, hey, he's like, you guys need to talk more. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I had no idea these guys cared this much. I had no idea that they thought this much. I had no idea they were this smart. He's like, they, honestly, my, this blows my mind. Like these guys are really smart people and they really think about this. And you can tell they really care. He's like, I had no idea that was true because everybody's opinion are formed by the five minute soundbite, right? Like the opinion of this recent shooting in Texas is going to be formed based on the press conference.
0: Fuck me.
1: Right which is not exactly the best representation for anybody. But that's, that's where the public is going to gather their information that the department gave them erroneous information. And then the governor came out and said the department had lied to him. And like that's where people are going to form their opinions. They're not going to understand what it was like to be in a hallway knowing there's a guy with a gun with little kids and having to make a difficult decision. And whether they made the right decision is not my call because I don't know the facts. What I do know is I don't think there was anybody standing in that hallway that was like, hey, let's let this guy kill the kids. Right? Let's, let's, let's you know, let's screw this up, guys. Let's not care. Everybody that was in that building cared. Whether they made the right decision, time will tell. You know, certainly it, it doesn't look ideal, but time will tell once we have the actual facts. But in the end, none of those guys wanted to go poorly. None of these incidents, you know, even Breonna Taylor, which you know, it's kind of universally regarded now as like the the one that everybody kind of goes, "Oh man," you know, I don't know that that was the right thing to do. None of those guys went in there like, "Hey, let's screw up our careers and our lives," right, <laughs> right. And and that's that's the thing people don't understand. You know, one of the things that that I've had people say is, "Well, you know, cops like killing people." In the thirty-seven years I've done this, I've known hundreds of people that have been in shootings. I've known hundreds of people that have been shot. I have never seen anybody be in an officer involved shooting and have it benefit their life. Mm -hmm. They're damaged. Their career is damaged. Frequently they're financially damaged. You know, if, if it's a good shoot, then they feel kind of moderately bad about it. If it's a bad shoot, then they feel terrible about it for the rest of their life. But nobody knows that nobody sees the police officer that is crying because he just shot somebody he wasn't supposed to shoot.
0: Or that he shot somebody that he had to shoot
1: that he had to and didn't want to,
0: you know, it's man. I can't, I can't You put enough emphasis on what you would just said. And and we talk about, you know, mental health all the time, but you know, and going back to your point, police are human beings. Yeah. And, and if for some reason, the public seems to have forgotten that right Everyone else is allowed to make mistakes except for the police officer that shows up. Right. And it's, it's, it's just mind boggling to me that you go, yeah, that's, they, they wanted to, they wanted to hurt that person. They wanted to... no. I've never talked to one person who's like, man, I really hope I get into a scrap this shift. I really hope I have to shoot somebody this shift. Like where do these people's minds go where they think that that's normal? Well, right? the thing is it's,
1: it's, just... it's, they don't, they don't know what's normal. Because nobody's articulating to them what's normal. There there aren't there aren't interviews where people can see these guys. You know, one of the things that's really striking in the first few episodes of the podcast is, you know, the, the first two episodes with Sid, you will see how tortured he was by his guys being killed. Right? Lee McMillian from LAPD tells a story of one of the questions that I asked the guys is, what is the most profound memory of your career? And, you know, nobody has said, man, I got to kill somebody right? Ron McCarthy, an absolute legend in SWAT, right? All over the world. I asked Ron that question, his eyes flooded with tears. And he said, my partner being murdered be in front of me me when I was a new officer. That was 60 years ago. And it still chokes him up and tears him up. Sid talked about guys he lost in Vietnam. Lee McMillian talked about a, a, a SWAT case where One of his guys got shot and a 19 month old ended up being killed by the team. Right. These are life defining events for these guys. Mm -hmm. But if nobody gets to see, you know, like you were talking, nobody gets to see behind the curtain that everybody just assumes that the wizard is the wizard. And so it is, that was part of this whole thing is let's bring this information to light in a way that's not, you know, it's not negative for law enforcement we're, we're vetting every episode. We have people watching it. All of our guests watch it before we air it. Um, you know, we're making sure that the messaging that we're releasing is, is not destructive, but it's real and it's raw. And you see how these people feel and you hear their stories. And, you know, we did an interview with a guy named Buddy Brown. Um, York County, South Carolina had a horrific shootout with a suspect domestic violence suspect that shot one of their canine officers. And then they lose him for a while. He disappears. The SWAT team gets there. He shoots two more SWAT officers. They have a blue on blue. Like you hear these, the agony in these guys and you hear the stories and you hear everything that's going on and and you can't help but feel for them. But if nobody's telling that story, it's very easy to demonize or law enforcement and paint them with a brush. And that's what the other side has done for years is they've made a concerted effort to paint law enforcement as monsters, as racists, as, you know, brutal. And, and certainly there are, there are racist cops, just like there are racist doctors. It's just when it's a cop, it's more noticeable and and it, it ends up making the news, but it is such a small percentage where force is inappropriately used, where, where people have ulterior motives, but unless there's somebody talking about that, the the public doesn't have, they don't know the difference.
0: Yeah. And I think stoicism plays a big part in that, right? It's a double-edged sword and it's been ingrained in our culture, right? Military law enforcement doesn't first responders doesn't matter that, that stoic behavior where I'm going to keep this, I don't need to talk about it. I, I they don't if they don't understand, they're not gonna understand. If I tell them it's not gonna make a difference, and that's an, an opinion that a lot of people have, and they go, There's no benefit for me to share this, so I'm just gonna keep it right. And the problem is, is because again, going back to the tactical conversation, they're not thinking tactically, they're not thinking what is the long term of this whole process you know i had this um a completely i'm going to go down a completely different rabbit hole on you for a second um i want to talk i'm gonna talk about TikTok. tock um let's try to bring this one back together okay so here's how here's my here's my thing TikTok is a chinese-owned enterprise we know that in china TikTok is regulated for youth so in china if you're 18 years or younger the content on the platform is regulated. So it's academic or educational content only for the most part. So all of the high valued and high ranked um, posts on the platform in China are of some type of academic value. And they actually throttle all of the content that would seem stupid, joking, uneducational, right? If you look in North America, it's the exact opposite. So the algorithm is switched, so that in North America we have all of these—it's the dance um, uh, competitions and the all of these challenges and all of this stuff—and all of the educational content is throttled. Do you think that that's just a coincidence? Because I sure don't. And oh, so, no, yeah, no, I, not at I look all. At it, I look at the the I I like to call it 4D chess. Our Western culture is so we want we want our cake and we want to eat it now right we want yeah. it we want everything right now the eastern culture is completely different we look at things in the day they they look at things in dynasty they look at things in one in 2000 year increments so they go and they say well hey listen we're going to put something together that we can work on for the next 40 50 100 years and they're they're systematically changing generational generations here in north america by the way that they implement their strategies so they they can sit there and they can create platforms that make our younger generations a little bit less intelligent and while they prioritize the education for those, i you know you take um if you take like for example uh algebra right you take somebody who's in like grade 6 in china and you compare them to any Senior level person in in the U.S. As, in terms of uh, algebra and mathematics, uh, uh, somebody in grade six is going to blow any person out of the water in the U.S. in like a senior level high school, right? Why is that? Where are things being prioritized? Right? It's it's crazy to me that we we don't see that we don't see the forest through the trees, and that's that's an example that I'm going to use to go back to our conversation that we were having is that we have a very hard time in our industry understanding that we have an ability to affect long-term change, but we're trading that in so that we don't, we don't shoot ourselves in the foot metaphorically today so that I don't have to deal with the bad press today so that I don't have to deal with all of the issues today, but you're giving up that long-term win. And I, and I really think we do a piss poor job as a society, as a whole, in a lot of things, um, but our industry specifically has an issue with that.
1: We don't value mastery. We don't value mastery. I mean, as a country, we are more interested in getting a black belt than we are in actually understanding what it means. What it is? To, yeah, to, to actually understand the art. Right. I remember when I studied Aikido, I studied Aikido with a Japanese monk. And there, there were no belts.
0: I was hoping there you were, were going to no say, Seagal, dude. I was hoping. No, 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 no. no.
1: <laughs> well, this, guy's, this guy was much worse. Uh, but there was no Q system. You didn't. You didn't. You didn't promote. Eventually, you understood enough that you tested for black belt, right? And Americans hated it. Like it makes us crazy. We want to know. Oh no, I, I I'm going to get one of these twelve steps. And I have another friend who's a professional martial artist and and ran a very successful school of martial arts. And he said Americans want they want to promote every three months. So, you know, yellow belt to orange belt becomes yellow, yellow, one stripe, yellow, two stripe, yellow, three stripe. Now you're an orange belt. Okay. It took you a year to get there, but you had those four little dopamine hits in between.
0: That cost you 120 bucks.
1: Yes, exactly. For a new belt. But, um, but that's kind of where we are is we, we have, we have gone away from focusing on mastery and, and gone to a point where we're focusing only on this next little dopamine hit. Right, Our marketing people told me the, the attention span now on the internet is 12 seconds. If you can't get someone's attention, and this is backed by data, if you can't get someone's attention in 12 seconds, you'll lose them. Which is insane, right? And I think that you look at the emergence of podcasts like yours that are deep dive podcasts and the stuff that we're doing, you know, deep dive podcasts, The number of people that are looking for that deep level of knowledge. I mean, here we have this amazing medium, right? Like you think about when you were a little kid, you couldn't learn this way. You couldn't watch video and see repeated incidents and dive into them and, and, and do tests. And like, it was so much harder to teach. We've gotten, we've made it easier to teach, but we haven't leveraged that to mean that in that same hour, you're learning more. What's happened is we've taken that one-hour class and made it a 12-minute class or a 15-minute class. And we're not we're not taking the time to teach that deep level of mastery. And we we don't want it. As a society, we want it to be cheaper. We want it to be faster. You know, I remember there's a story recently I read on the news. It was talking about why airplanes fly so slow. Because, you know, here we are 25 years later. It takes you longer to get to New York than it used to 25 years ago. And, and there's there's a great video, actually. I think it's, a, it's either a TED Talk or or an educational video that dives into that question. Why are airplanes so slow? You know why they're so slow? Because we don't want to pay for airfare. They could be faster, but we've used all those efficiency gains to make it cheaper to fly, not to make it faster to fly. And you look at training, like I remember the first chemical agents class that I went through was a week-long instructor's course. You had to do teach-backs. You had to demonstrate mastery. And I look at what is being taught now and it is a dramatically different program. And one of the striking things in talking to as many teams as I do is when you talk to the, you know, the original generation, that first generation of SWAT cops, they understood things at such a deep level that when they had to apply it, they understood it. Right? They were playing classical music until they mastered it, and then they started playing jazz. The problem is now we've gone back and we're like, we're not going to teach you all that. We're just going to teach you to play this song.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, well, it's,
1: then, then you get faced with a different song and you have no idea how to play
0: anymore. Yeah. It's a, it's a technical competency, right? So, yeah. Hey, here's a chemical agent. Here's how to, here's how to use it. Here's yeah. the button to press. You have to be this far away. Like, good to go. Yep. Thumbs up, Raj. Okay. Check in the box. See you later. Like yeah. it's, you,
1: it's you the lose, what? It's not the why.
0: You lose. You I, man. I I couldn't. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, going back to that whole instructor development thing that that we're really going to be focusing on is is exactly that, right? Taking taking those those people, whether they're students, they're officers, whoever, but getting those instructors so that the instructor at a minimum even understands like how to take knowledge out of one adult's head and put it into another adult's head, right? The whole concept of learning, uh, pedagogy, right? How do I actually take knowledge and share it with another human being? Because there's a whole, there's a whole fundamental science behind that. And it doesn't matter if you're a tactical operator or you're a kindergarten teacher, it's the same thing. It's how do we teach other human beings? And I think the problem is, is you take these instructor schools and, you have an officer who gets picked out firearms is one of the one of the worst perpetrators because hey, we're short two firearms instructors. Cool. So next time you run a range, identify two of your best shooters um, and see if they want to be instructors. And then they pick out their two shooters and they say, hey, you want to be instructors? They go, yeah, 100%. So they send them to a 40 hour instructor school where they learn some basics of how to actually build a course out and how to actually train within that agency. And that's, that's the that may be all of the instructor training that that officer gets for 20 years.
1: and we yeah, and, none, and none of it is curriculum based. none, none of, of it is of, actual instruction. uh you know we it's 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 like the seventh place trophy culture that we've kind of created. oh the participant where,
0: ribbons. yes, Man, the participant I went, ribbon. I went down i i had a knockdown drag out with my wife's friends the other day. um we were sitting around having drinks and the i can't remember what the conversation came up But I was like, um, our kids are not allowed to accept participation ribbons in any school activity or any sport that they'd ever do. And they're like, what? And I said, I'm literally, my kids are not going to be allowed to accept them. And they were like, you can't do that. And I said, oh, it's, it's happening. (laughs) I, I personally believe that has been the downfall of our, our entire society. It's it's funny. It's
1: funny because my, uh, my son, uh, when he was in like sixth grade, um, the coach of the school, they had kind of a broad based athletics program where it's like, everybody's going to, I think it's probably fifth grade. Everybody's going to learn to do kind of everything, right? You're going to learn to play a little bit of soccer and baseball and we'll rotate the sports through. And, and the coach gets up to give this talk. And he says, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to do this in a non-threatening way. We're going to do this in a non-threatening way. We're going to make sure the kids all have fun here and I walked up to him afterwards and said, Hey coach, I appreciate everything you're trying to say. And I get what you're trying to go. Um, I want you to do me a favor. If my kid sucks at something, I want you to tell him he sucks, tell him how to get better, but do not tell him he's good at something when he sucks at it,
0: mm-hmm. because
1: it's going to take me forever to unscrew the damage you are doing by telling him that, you know, he poops rainbow Sherbert, right? Like, I, you know, I want my kids to understand that you can be very good at things and you can be anything you want to be, but you're going to have to work your ass off and you're going to have to apply yourself. And in the process of that, you're going to have to accept criticism and you're going to have to be told what you're not good at. And, and the problem is that we've, we've culturally, we've moved to this point where people don't want to hear bad things. You know, one of the things that we talked about in one of the podcasts was how do you set SWAT standards? Well, if you don't kick people off the team. It's not a standard, right? Right. If you have a PT standard and failing, it means, well, you better pass it next time. And then failing it again means, well, you better pass it next time. It's not a standard. It's a suggestion. And, and several of the guests have talked about how we have lost that drive. And in a lot of smaller agencies, it's very challenging because if you have an agency with 50 people and you need 10 guys for a SWAT team, you don't have a lot of opportunity to kick people off. And, you know, where you get into larger agencies, you start to see a more deliberate cultural downselect. But if, if culturally we are not failing people, right, people do what's inspected, not what's expected. Mm-hmm. If we are not failing people at things, if we are not testing people at things, then we're we're eroding the standard. And, you know, I can remember early on going through firearms training with, you know, Louis Arbuck, uh, just as a, a name from the past, you know, Jeff Rogers, like the, those classes, you, you either passed or you were remediated. You didn't get to the end of the class and flunk the, the, the class, you know, flunk the test or not qualify, you know, not shoot the qualifying course and then be told that that's okay Here's your participation ribbon. What you were told was, hey, you didn't pass the class. We'll remediate you and let you do another couple of days so that you achieve that level of mastery. Mm-hmm. The problem is we, we culturally that's become offensive to us. Yes. And, and what you see in the top tier units, like when, when you get to the actual top tier units that we deal with, they are absolutely maniacal about their standards and their culture. They, they will enforce their standards. And you know, people look at like, for instance, buds, you know, where they have this, this massive down select I had a friend that ran buds for several years. And it was right at the point that the Gulf war was kicking our second Gulf war was kicking off. There's a lot of pressure on the teams to expand the number of people in the teams. And they started feeding more people into the program and, and they're yelling at him. Like, you, you know, you got to get more guys out of the program. And he said, you know, we can't get more guys out of the program. So if you we're going to double the number of people we put into the program. They were still getting the same number of people at the end of the program. And, and his point was, there might only be 30 guys in any given quarter that can meet this standard. So your choices are lower the standards or accept that that's what's going to happen. And, and, you know, what we see right now is this kind of drive to like, well, everybody's good, you know, everybody's equal, everybody's the same, everybody's good at everything. And if everybody's good at everything, that means everybody sucks at everything.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've, to your point, I think it's been a constant that I've noticed that really top level teams, they self-regulate their standard, right? Their own culture and standard. So you see a a very high performing team. You don't need a staff sergeant to come down on them and say, Hey, we need to make sure we're doing PT. Those guys are doing their own stuff on their own time because they don't want to fall behind the rest of their team. Yeah. Because the
1: team will marginalize them and eventually drive them
0: out. It's, it's, and I think that's, I think people miss that a lot. You know, obviously you get to deal with tier one level units all the time and, and high level operations teams. I think that's the stand. I think that's I think that's common across the board, where when you have these teams that are so um, intimate with one another, um, where they're working together all the time, they have a really high op tempo. They're 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 creating their own standard, which is going to be far and away above whatever baseline qualification the agency actually requires. But the problem is, is you take some of these teams that are maybe um, part time teams or whatever teams that are, that bring in people from multiple agencies for callouts, That's where I've, I've had conversations where they're finding a lot of issues because now you're, you're saying, okay, what is the minimum? What is the minimum qualification to be able to be one of these folks that gets called out for this? Um, and that's where you have the biggest discrepancies where you have somebody who's super high performance that takes the absolute every minute of every day to optimize their own selves in their in their capabilities, they show up. And you also have, you know, Bob who shows up who every time the only training he does on a firearm is every time he runs a qualification, which qualifications aren't training, by the way, folks. Um and that's 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 their all all of their their training for that year. Right? You have somebody who trains every single day on their own and you have somebody who trains never because they don't have to because their agency says ah this is our qualification as long as you've met it you don't have to do anything.
1: Well, and one of the things that I talked about with with both Mike Hillman and Ron McCarthy was this idea that a SWAT team, and I'm using air quotes while I say the term SWAT team, doesn't have a definition, right? But to the public, a SWAT team is a SWAT team. So so to the average person on the street, a SWAT team in Wetterershoe, Wisconsin that has five operators on it is the same level of proficiency As a SWAT team at LAPD. And that is not and cannot be true, right? You have an agency with 10,000 people in it who are down selecting to 60, many of whom have been there for 15 years. That is a different level of proficiency than can ever be maintained in small agencies with part time teams. But to the public, it is exactly the same thing. And because there isn't a tiering system that allows teams, to opt out of missions every team has every mission which means the team that's coming to get you on a hostage rescue may have you know in the case of LA sheriff you know you may have a a 10 man element that's moving or 10 man stack that's moving in that has 10,000 entries and combined have 400 500 600 hostage rescues they're going to have a different approach and a different skill level than a team that this is literally the first hostage rescue they've ever done. But the expectation of the public is exactly the same. And one of the problems with law enforcement is they're not allowed to retreat. There isn't a, hey, we can't do this for law enforcement. So it's like, you know, one of the best examples I heard, one of my friends, uh, Todd Mackler, who runs Armour for Safari Land, said, the problem is there's a driver's license standard. I've got a driver's license. My 16 year old daughter's got a driver's license and Mario Andretti's got a driver's license. Well, we've all got driver's licenses, so we must all drive the same. That's not true. And it creates an unrealistic expectation for teams that are only being allowed to train once a month Mm -hmm. or twice a month. You know, when you start looking at full time units that are training five days a week when they're not operating and they're operating 150 or 200 times a year, it's just a different level of skill. And a different level of mastery. And now add to that rotation, add to that retirement. You know, it's just it, it, it becomes unfair to a lot of those teams that we're trying to hold them to this extremely high, you know, we're holding them to the Mario Andretti driving standard when they make a mistake, but then we're holding them to the you've got a driver's license standard when we want them to drive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do want to just um uh clarify on my position because I was being slightly hyperbolic when I was saying there's part-time operators out there that are on teams that don't do any training and only qualify once a year. I was I was being <laughs> hyperbolic and not saying that there are members that are members of SWAT teams that are that'll that do not train because that's not true. We know that, but to to just to to make that point, there there like you had said, there is a different level, right? And I think part of that also is you know this, this culture that we have, the, the Hollywood culture where people see these shows like SWAT, right. Or seal team. And they're like, that's what they, that they, they see that and they go, Oh, this must be based off of, you know, Hollywood obviously uses consultants. So this must be very close to real life. This is how they actually operate. And you're like, no, (laughs) in fact, like my wife's favorite team or favorite show is seal team. She's like, that's my show. And I sit there and as much as I find it entertaining, I can't watch it and and be like, oh, this is very, this is very accurate because it's not. And so
1: it's a a lot more accurate than the SWAT show is.
0: (laughs) That's very true. Yes, that's very true. Um, But you, you go there and you see, you know, but that's what the public's perception of it is because that's what they see, Right. So now they expect, like you had said, they expect uh, an agency who's in a smaller uh, area or uh, like where they they have a very low op tempo and they expect them to perform like a high op tempo team, like a high performance team, like uh, FBI HRT and LAPD SWAT up here in Canada, like with uh, uh, Toronto ETF, these teams that have very high op tempos that are doing it day in and day out all the time. And now they expect that same performance, but at the, now at the Hollywood level, this is what I saw on TV. So I also expect that I expect that every shot they take to be the right shot and perfect every time. And you're like, I'm sorry, that's just not how that works. And you know, like we've, we've been doing some stuff with for science um, and trying to show a lot of the work that they're doing on reaction time. Show like that, Hey, if we took any human being in the world, doesn't matter if they're a tier one operator or Betty Sue, who's a teacher at, you know, whatever high school, and you put them in the same simulator, their reaction times, obviously the, the people that have trained, the operators are going to have a better reaction time, but from a statistical standpoint, it's all within kind of the same grouping. And, and you show them like, this is how human, this is how human beings work. And, and once, and we need to do a better job of getting that information out to folks, but here's the problem data and, and information only goes so far, right? You, you, you said this. Um, I don't know if you did any litigation um, when you, when you did your legal work, but like you, you explain to somebody or you show them a graph or you explain it to them and contextualize it to them verbally. They go, oh, okay, I understand that, but do they really It's not until they actually get hands on with it and they actually do it themselves and they have that kinesthetic feedback and they go, Oh, okay. Now I understand. We just don't have the ability to take everybody in the world and put them through simulator training or put them through reality-based training or, or put a gun in their hand and let them actually just shoot it, which we could do technically, I guess, but there's, there's all of these things that we're missing. We're missing the boat on how do we relay what the reality of the job is versus what they're, Interpretation of what the job is. Um, it's it's very funny because you,
1: you you raised two really interesting points there. The first one, uh, Malcolm Gladwell has a podcast called Revisionist History. Gladwell is is not historically pro police, but he's very pro data. And um, I, I'll send you the the thing that we can link to the show links. But he he actually talks about yeah Blink yeah exactly. Those are all Glad. I, I mean Blink I is fantastic. Yeah Blink is fantastic. And he looks at, you know, one of the shootings in, in New York, but this, this new podcast, he talks about shootings and, and he takes this very deep dive and looks at reaction time and looks at what happens. It's a good one to link to, and I'll, I'll send it to you for your show notes because he ends up concluding like the, the cops didn't have a choice, like there was nothing they could do. They, they, they were going to lose the gunfight. And uh, the other thing that you raised that I think is very interesting is you talk about human reaction time. So one of my hobbies is racing cars and the difference between a very fast racing driver and a very slow racing driver is, you know, part of it is bravery and part of it is being comfortable with slip. But when you watch formula one and you see like, Oh my God, that was an amazing. Save the car came loose and he saved it. If you really watch it, what you realize is the car is not even loose yet and he's countersteering, right? His hands are moving. Before the problem occurs, because he feels and understands the balance of the car and realizes it's going to come loose on me and he's already counter steering. So you look at it you're like, oh my God, his reaction times are amazing. His reaction times aren't amazing. I mean, they're good. They're certainly good because he's a Formula One driver, but they're not superhuman. It's just that his clock starts way before yours does.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He recognizes. The car is going to come loose. I'm a little tight to the apex. I hit a little bump. The car is going to come loose. He's unwinding the steering wheel and countersteering long before you would recognize the problem, and that's what's missing in the mastery training, right? That is mastery. That is somebody who has spent a lot of time on the range, you know, or spent a lot of time doing movement training, or been through a lot of operations, and realizes that things are going sideways. Before, they're behind the problem, mm-hmm. and, and and the problem with only teaching the technique and not reaching that level of mastery is that's what you lose. You lose that you know a hundred milliseconds or hundred and fifty milliseconds where Lewis Hamilton's hands are already starting to unwind and head the other direction, and you and I would be thinking, "Oh, it feels good to me," and sometimes. That 150 milliseconds is the delta between an officer surviving or dying.
0: Oh yeah, oh man, it's the it's so crazy. We did um, we do a lot of work with Virtra and Virtra teamed up with Force Science and they created a bunch of simulations based off of reaction time, um, and and it's broken down based off of the research that they did, and then when you they actually show your reaction times down to a thousandth of a second, um, and then they show you statistically where you fit within the the median and the mean on reaction time, on this, that, whatever, but you'll, you start to see like, wow, like, that guy that I, I noticed that there was an object, and you can see in the replay, like I noticed and I I observed a weapon I started moving, but they still got a shot off at me before I even got up on target Um, still got them, but it all happens in tens of thousands of a second Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. So, it, 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 I,
1: so, I worked with an optometrist that was, that worked with professional baseball players and he, he worked with hitters. Like that was his job was to teach them how to better use their eye. And he had developed software that allowed you to train your eyes to better see contrast and train your eyes to better see edges. And, and was it was like, horrible, these
0: little. I was a horrible hitter because a lot of guys that I spoke with that were great hitters, could see the rotation of the ball coming out of the pitcher's hand, and I was like, "How do you see that?" <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, and that's exactly one of the things he said is is really good baseball batter. You know, really good batters have, generally speaking, twenty ten vision, and they have very high ability to see contrast and very high ability to pick up edges, and so they're hitting a different ball than you are. Right. They're seeing more, and the, you know, a well trained professional batter is moving before you would move right he's he's moving that clock back and that's where in a tactical situation you're moving the time back again maneuvering in time right the well trained tactical operator realizes this guy's behavior is sketchy i'm going to begin to move to a different position i'm going to you know take action to protect myself long before the one that isn't well trained and so he, he is ahead of the gunfight rather than behind it. Yeah. And and that's, that's where, you know, I'm hoping that with what you're doing and what we're doing and you know, it's the thing with training is training is not competitive. You and I had this conversation when we first talked, training is not competitive. We should be trying to spread as much information Mm -hmm. and share as much information as we can, because we want people to consume as much as they possibly can. And you know, it's, it's, people are saying, well, is this podcast competitive with other podcast? No, I hope it's additive. We're linking to show notes. We're, we're telling people, Hey, you can find this speaker on these other shows because we need to spread information and get as much information into the community as we possibly can. Or, or we're going to continue to have the same problems.
0: Yeah. Oh, and, and before I forget, if you are listening to this, um, the debrief podcast. You can find it. Um, we're going to make sure we put it on our, uh, network as well. So podcast.islet.network. You can link to it through there. There's going to be direct links in the show notes. Um, you can get it through the Ardvar tactical website as well. I believe there's a link through the website there. So lots of ways for you to get access to, uh, the debrief podcast. We'll make sure you, uh, you get it there or on YouTube. Or any place else that you can find it. So I'm yeah, sure Apple,
1: Apple, Podbean, Spotify. There's actually a website for the debrief called thedebrief.live.
0: Perfect. Uh, there you which
1: go. which will have all the episodes. We're going to do really detailed show notes. So one of my goals is when we bring these guys on, like for instance, with Sid Hale, Sid had six separate reading lists that he recommended to people that were uploading onto the website. So it's like, you know, well, what books would you read? Well, what do you want to read about? You want to read about leadership? Here's this list. So one of the things we're asking is what, what books are you reading? Where did you learn this information? What podcasts do you listen to? And then we're linking to all that in the show notes because we, we really want to, this is not a commercial venture. There's no sponsorship on this podcast. We're not taking money from YouTube. We're not doing anything else. The goal of this thing is to simply share information.
0: I love that, man. I'm, I'm super excited to see what you guys come up with. Uh, like I had mentioned offline, you, you set it up the same way that I would. Unfortunately I'm in central Canada. So it's hard for me to get people to come up here and sit, sit down face to face <laughs> fair. to have a conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I'm considering as we, I mean, obviously like, for example, when I was in Ailita, um, following probably this podcast coming out, we have 30, I've, I did 36 interviews in a week oh when I was God. at Ailita. Um, 36, 20 to half hour video or like video interviews, um, which going back to the point that you just made, actually, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I think one of the other key things, and, and I don't mean to lump myself into this group, but I think the people that are the, the absolute best at what they do are also lifetime learners, right? They, they always want to, to just gain more knowledge and information. And for me, when I get to do these podcasts and I'm sure, you you know, now that you're into this game as well, but you, throughout your career, like you've said, you've had the opportunity to learn, just learn from and absorb information from all of these amazing trainers, instructors, SMEs all over the world. When I get to go to these conferences like Alita or like I'm in NAFTA next in a couple of weeks and then for science and I get to sit there and I just get to do interviews with folks. I literally, I kind of called it when I was at Alita, I called it, I had kind of the cheat sheet to the entire conference. So instead of me having to go and sit through lectures from each of these instructors, I brought them to me and basically got the Coles notes like give me the gold nuggets out of your entire presentations and share them with me. So I got to get that from 36 instructors rather than the dozen I would have seen attending training throughout the week. So I kind of I kind of broke the mold on the conference because I got I feel like I got the most information out of the week more than anybody. But the coolest thing about it is now I get to take that and I get to share it with everybody else, right? And so now everybody, doesn't matter if you got to that conference or not, now you the, these officers also get access to all of this knowledge and information and they don't have to pay for it. It's not like it's not like that it's behind a paywall, like you had said. They don't, there's, there's no real, you don't have to go out of your way to get this information. Literally click the link and it shows up, it's right there for you. Here's the YouTube video, here's the podcast. The information is there. And why is it there? It's because these folks, these instructors that are the best at what they do, they share their knowledge. They're like, literally take it and use it. Because if you can't use it, what fucking good is it to anybody? If you yeah, I not mean, get past, what good is it to anybody?
1: hundred percent. You know, it's it, it, we go back to the beginning of our conversation. Then the next guy just picks up the damn rattlesnake. Like let, let's, you know, the, the goal has got to be sharing information. You go back to what Sid told me, when i was you know 22 or 23 years old like you don't hoard information you share information and the thing is you know you talked about being lifelong learners the one consistent thing in everybody i've interviewed in these first 13 episodes season 1's 13 episodes in in these 13 episodes the one consistent thing with every single one of these guys is they are all students of the game they spend their time learning and they learn from everybody they can and they try to apply every lesson somebody else has learned to their own life. And you know there's there's certainly overlap in books and there's overlap in podcasts but not as much as you would expect. Mm-hmm. Uh you know the, the the some of the books that have been referred to in this first season I would have never read. And these guys bring in lessons that they learn from these books or they bring in lessons that they've learned from, oh, you know, I was in Israel and I went and saw this team and they do this differently. And, you know, they had this idea or they, those guys all came back and shared that information. And I think if your listeners can learn anything from what you're doing, which is fantastic, it's be a lifelong learner and look, look for lessons everywhere.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say the most influential Knowledge that I've gotten in the last ten years hasn't come from anything law enforcement or military related. Yeah, right. I mean, you because again, you and here's another thing too with with like I let uh, I was trying to tell this to explain this to somebody the other day. We're trying to build this platform out. Traditionally, in our industry, we're we're about ten to fifteen years behind the curve. Right. So for sure, training, technology, or whatever. For some reason are are the flash to bang on us picking up something takes a while because by the time it gets uh well it, it has to be first somebody has to find it then it has to be brought in then it has to be tested then it has to be vetted then it has to be adopted then there has to be policies made for it then all of these things have to happen before it actually gets out to the officer to use so what I want to do with Ilet is I want to find out what the future is going to be and I want to take us 10 to 15 years ahead, which would net us a 30 year gain in what we can actually do. And so like, that's, that's my goal. I want to, I want to take us from where we were or where we're, where where we are now to what we can be in the future and, and start sharing the ways that we do that. Because I think that's crazy. I think you guys are doing it. You have been from a, a company standpoint with Aardvark for, since you guys started right
1: yeah that's that that is my job right my job i always jokingly say my job is to be the q branch to your james bond uh you know my job is to figure out where where can i make my operator safer what technology allows my guy to not stick his head in an attic just as an example (laughs) and and, you know because that's (laughs) yeah usually (laughs) even even if you're the young guy on the team it's still not a good job
0: yeah
1: uh you know it's it's all of those questions and that's where being embedded with all the teams that we are interacting with everybody that we are you do start to see that but it's there isn't uh, you know one of the one of the losses with mastery is also foresight and and taking the time to go where do we want to be and that's where the military is very good they spend a lot of time thinking about futures they spend a lot of time thinking about capability and technology and how they can evolve technology to yield capability the problem with law enforcement is there isn't the funding to do that so they rely on industry in a lot of cases to do that. And if the industry doesn't understand the end user, they, they don't develop good technology. I mean, the idea that, that we are just now beginning to use drone technology and, and having to buy Chinese commercial drones in a lot of cases, except for there are a limited number of purpose-built drones. We sell one called a Loki that's purpose-built for slot teams. But the majority of agencies are having to buy like DJI off the shelf commercial drones that people have been using to film their kids snowboarding. And like that technology should have been here 20 years ago Mm -hmm. because it was there. They were using it to make film. They were doing other things, but it was too expensive and there was nobody that could do the futures research. So that is part of my job is to try to be the futures research for our teams and our agencies. And you look at like our armor brand project seven, that's, that is my job with project seven is figure out how to make your armor more effective and how to make it move better and how to think about where my end user is going mission set wise. But, but it's, it is the, this is the price we pay for decentralization and for underfunding our law enforcement is we've lost some of that. And that's where I think you and I have a job to do to bring that information at, at, you know, zero cost to consumer, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and, and really filter it and share it. And that's why I love what you guys are doing.
0: Yeah, man. Well, let's, let's, um, for anybody who doesn't know about aardvark, uh, tactical.com is where you can find it. Uh, for those of you folks who uh, didn't do so well in, in the high school biology, aardvark is two A's, a, uh, a, r, d, v, a, r, k. Um, just cause I know people are going to be in there and they're going to be like aardvark. Fuck. Aardvark. <laughs> fuck. Uh, yeah. yeah. um, the
1: good news A's. list, you know, it's, it's at the beginning of the alphabet. The bad news is two A's.
0: That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> You guys, I, and and to be completely honest, I mean, like I didn't know I I'd heard about you. I'd never done a deep dive into what you guys did until you and I really got connected. Um, and just seeing the the quality of stuff that you guys are putting out and how long you've been doing it. Um, you have the the robots and the drones and now the armor, like you had said. You have uh, breaching tools. You have all of these things that are. I mean, it's obviously very tactically centric. Um, but like you had said, there's not too many companies that have the the ability to take what's the the operators on the ground. I'm assuming you guys come up with, you prototype shit and literally hand it off to a team and say, tell me if, see if you can break it, right? All like, the time.
1: Yeah, all the time. Like that's it, it, it's, a good it's part it's of that, what they do. It's that and it's the exact opposite. It's a team comes to us and says, we just went through it with one of the, one of the, the top teams in the world uh, trying to integrate their rebreathers into their dive platforms and build an armor platform for it. And, you know, it's like, here's the problem. How do we solve this? And then we'll prototype it, send it to them. They would dive it, come back, go, it does this, it does this. We'd prototype it, send it back to so them. That, that's a lot. That's the fun part of my job, right. right? The fun part of my job is being queued to the to the real James Bonds of the, of the counterterrorism world where, you know, they're bringing us challenges and asking us to solve them. But then those lessons are incorporated into everything else we do. Uh, one of the things that happens with Project 7 is if a team gives us an idea in the middle of fielding a platform. So let's say, you know, you say, hey, I want a special pouch integrated into my vest to hold maple syrup, just as a theoretical Canadian stereotype. Love it. Uh, and, and we go, you know what? Maple syrup is, a lot of teams use maple syrup. We should have a maple syrup pouch on, on all of our armor platforms. We will stop production on everything that's pending that is affected by that that pouch or that, that you know, that modification and modify the next vest that leaves leaves with that technology on it if we find that there's a, you know a glitch or a problem we will apply that to stuff that is literally about to leave the building making sure that we are we are always producing the latest greatest gear because in the end my job is to make an operator safe and the only way i do that is by pushing the edge and making sure that what we're doing meets their needs.
0: Yeah, man. I love that. I I'm, I'm so jazzed about it. Um, you know, I, I keep, as we're talking, I'm like scrolling through and I keep seeing all the different shit that you guys have on your website. So <laughs> I get, I'm also a kit whore though. So yeah. I always have been, even when I was in the military, I was just like, Oh, I gotta have that. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> you I, know, the, the gear, the gear guy on the team is, is my guy. You know, the guy that's got, uh, you know, who has a a box with 50 different pouches in it. That's my guy because he's already gone through 49 that don't work and he can tell me which one does. Yeah. Uh, So a lot of, a lot of, you know, the, the job of our guys that are in the field with teams, uh, myself included is to go make me smart, you know, make, make me smarter than I am again, lifelong learning, right? Like I, I've done this a long time. I learn something every day with every team I'm with. And, you know, the, the thing that I love about what you're doing and, and what we're doing with the debrief is it it creates a platform. This is the great thing about podcasts. It creates a platform where anybody can see it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. It's not it's not a one to one relationship or a, a, you know, one to three hundred relationship like our lecture series is. It is a one to as many people as want to see it.
0: Yeah. Man, I'm 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 super pumped for this podcast. Um, how many how many episodes you guys have in the can?
1: 13. We've shot the entire first season. So that will the, the podcast is gonna be released every two weeks. Um, you know, one of the things I didn't want to do, and the same thing we do with our lecture series, I didn't want to become a slave to it. Um, because you know, running a business and doing other stuff that I do, I'm I'm kind of busy. And I wanted to make sure that we were able to maintain quality with my schedule and with work schedule and with the schedule of the guys that we're dealing with. So I said, I want to shoot six months of it right now. And and we shot it over the course of a probably a month worth of sitting down. Because you know, you get one or two episodes a day if you're lucky, especially with video, because it's complicated and takes forever and camera setups and uh you know it's amazing how long it takes to shoot. An hour of video is not an hour of video. But um <laughs> Not even close.
0: You got to work on the one takes, dude.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean that most of the interviews actually are one take. The problem is shooting an hour requires four hours of prep. Uh, You know, setting everything up and lighting and cameras and set. You know, it's it's a it's a beating. So I I said I want I want six months in the can to give us time to get the people that we really want. So we already got another eight or ten interviews set up to do that won't launch until January. But January, June 8th, we're launching two episodes. We're going to launch, you know, out of respect, you know, as, as a memorial to Sid, we're going to launch the two episodes with Sid on the 8th. Two weeks later, the third episode will be Lee McMillian, who is the uh, one of two lieutenants that runs LAPD SWAT. And then it just, it'll take a regular two week cadence from there. Uh, and we're, you know, I, I, we want feedback. I want to hear what people like and don't like, and, and, If, if people have ideas for good guests, uh, they can go to the debrief.live and there's a contact form. Please fill it out. Please give us suggestions. If you know somebody who has done amazing things or has, you know, is a great teacher, we would love to have them on. Uh, The goal is just to deliver the best product we possibly can to the community.
0: I love that, man. And, um, I'm excited to that. We we've started this and I think there's going to be a lot more things coming down the pipe, being able to, uh, to collaborate on. Um, there's for sure. so, much, so much synergy here um, and, and really just in the mission and values, right? Like, and we, we talked about this, right? It's doing the right thing for the right reason. Um, it's also very neat that because Islet's so broad and we cover so many different topics, right? Like we're going to be running a corrections event in the fall here with Colorado DOC. Um, where we're training the 5,000 officers out of Colorado and then agencies around the U S and around the world in corrections though. Right. So I'm sure there's going to be a tactical subcomponent to that, but at the same time, we're so broad in what we do. Um, It's really neat that you guys are so hyper-focused. And so you're just, you're the tip of the spirit, what you're good at and what you're great at, which is, which is, which is phenomenal. And I'm so excited to, to be able to showcase what you guys are doing, not just with aardvark, but with the new podcast and um, I, I wish you absolutely all the best with the podcast. I'm so pumped um, and uh, looking forward to promoting it as much as I can on my end as well. Because from what I've seen, the episodes that I've seen um, next level, I mean, I'm not going to say that you're better than I am because be <laughs> silly, but uh, a little bit of a different flavor, a little bit of a different flavor. So uh, listen, brother, I really appreciate you taking the time and doing this with me.
1: No, it's fantastic. I, you know, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this and, and I can't thank you enough for what you're doing, you know, for the community because it's, it, it it absolutely makes a difference and, and anything that we can do to support you, we're happy to do.
0: Thanks brother. Well, I look forward thank to you. working with you soon and uh, stay safe out there. All right. You too. Join the ILIT network. Now go to ILIT.network. That's I L E T dot network.